This podcast is part of the No Phony Podcast Network, the home of independent awesomeness. Did the 1980s have more one-hit wonders than we know about? Put the needle on the record and let's find out. Once again, it's time for the idiots. An objective defense of the 80s. From a couple of idiots. Welcome back to another episode of The Idiots, an objective defense of 1980s pop culture from a couple of 2021 hit wonders. <laughs> that was pretty good. I, I thought of it earlier. I'm not that clever on the spot like that. My name is Will, and joining me as always is my friend and my co-host, Ray. 2021. 2021. Yeah. No uh, more <laughs> show. 2021. <laughs> is that the official theme song of the new I think- year? I think it should be the official theme song of this year. Hmm. You know, yeah. Today on the show, we're going to be talking once more about one-hit wonders. Uh, first, we'll try our hand at identifying one-hit wonders from the 1980s uh, from just the first six seconds, right? Six seconds mm-hmm. of the track. And uh, you and I have s- some to challenge one another with, and listeners have also sent some in. Then, later on the show, and this is very exciting, we'll be speaking with the performer who brought us one of my favorite one-hit wonders from the 1980s, one of the few icons from the 1980s that can be identified by just one name, Mm -hmm. Taco. (laughs) Hey, before we get started, though, please don't forget to like and subscribe, rate, review, do all those things to help other folks find the podcast and show your appreciation for the podcast. Yeah. yeah. And now that you've uh, bought your, your neighbor a magnet to stick on their fridge. Okay. Bought everybody Christmas gifts. Yep. You can go to T public and get yourself something now because all the gift given is over. You deserve it. It's time to reward yourself. Yeah. All right. Hey, let's get caught up on 80s news. Okay. Hey, so Christmas has passed. New Year's has passed. I'm wondering if you had a chance to to check out Wonder Woman 1984. Didn't bother yet. <laughs> you know what? That's <laughs> probably the right way to say it because I bothered and then I was bothered. I don't know. It, yeah. was, it was kind I, of a bummer. I did read some reviews yeah. to kind of see if it would make me want to watch it. And that pushed me even farther away after reading reviews of it. Yeah. The, the review I'll give ultimately is it's fine. But- isn't that the review of the first movie? Oh, no. I like the first movie a lot. That was your review of the first movie, yeah. Oh, oh this is going to be... Fine. Wait, this was... <laughs> that's even worse. Um, yeah, what was your standards now? Uh, if you were going to rate something, the middle st- tier was meh, yeah. I think. Very good is the best tier. Oh, garbage is the lowest. So Garbage is the lowest, yeah. So if you thought the first one was meh, you're going to think this is garbage for sure. Yeah, I haven't heard anything good about it, so... Just, I don't know. There's a lot of just structural problems, like... Straight up screenwriting 101 that you think like, how did this get so far ahead as it did? But it did. Well, once again, I didn't didn't see it yet. But from what I've read from other people who enjoy the 80s, you, there's no reason for it to be set in the 80s except for some yep. comic relief. Yes. And that's what I wanted to talk to you about because, you know, my hope was since it's Woman to Woman 1984, it's right in the title. And we had this trailer that had uh, New Order was the song that was played under the trailer. I was very excited to get that, you know, 1980s vibe and see how it came across in the film. Well, it turns out that Patty Jenkins, the director, was worried about making it to 1980s. No such thing. So <laughs> she said her, temp- quote, her temptation, the temptation is to go 80s, haha, 
They make all these 80s jokes and put in 80s tracks. We don't have a lot of 80s tracks because as soon as you do that, you're being self-referential. But isn't the movie set in 1984? It is, yeah. So why in the hell would you not have 80s things in it? That yeah, doesn't well, make any sense. They might as well just whip out cell phones. Yeah. Oh, yes. This is the same problem I had with the It remake. It was supposed mm. to be set in the 80s, Yeah. the first part, and the only way you would even think that it was in the 80s was one kid had on like a a Slayer shirt or some mm. band, and I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. This is supposed to be the 80s. Yeah. Huh. Well, as she explains it, and I, I, it makes sense to me in one way, she says that she wanted it to feel like it was a film that may have come out in the 80s. And if it came out in the 80s, it wouldn't be referring to the 80s. It would just be set in the 80s. But she seemed to be so aware of that, that she strayed so far from that, that like she points out in that quote I just read, they didn't include any 80s songs. But if you listen to, if you watch any 80s movie, that's one of the main things is it's filled with songs that came out in the 80s. So I, I, don't know, I think she blew it in that uh, regard. It sounds like she got bad advice from Ryan Johnson. Ryan Johnson. Oh, the, Ryan the, Johnson. <laughs> yeah. That guy probably was like no, her yeah. go-to guy for what are you doing mm-hmm. to make a movie. I'm blaming Zack Snyder because they see him as the, you uh, know, yeah, heading up all these one. DC films and he's down as a producer and I, I don't care for what he's done with these films so far, but... Okay. Hey, in other 80s news, according to Variety.com, Seth MacFarlane to reboot Revenge of the Nerds with the Lucas Brothers. I'm all in on this one. Oh, Yeah. All in. So Keith and Kenny Lucas are identical twin comedians that uh, you you may recall having seen them in 22 Jump Street. They play uh, guys that are in on the drug scheme. I saw that movie. Anyway, they're pretty funny, but they are co-writing the script with Alex Rubens, who also did some work on Twilight Zone and Key and Peele. What's interesting to me about this is, and it makes sense, is that it's not going to be a remake of the 1984 comedy, which hasn't aged well, including <laughs> being criticized for a depiction of rape towards the end. With uh, with Seth involved, yep. I can't imagine it'll be any different than the 80s oh, version. Gosh. No, I don't know. He seems a little more sensitive than I think you're giving him credit, in spite I of the fact that so. how crass family guy can be. I don't know. He's pretty crass. Which I enjoy, yeah. In my opinion, no, that's, yeah, I like that show. I find that I find that humor to be yeah. right up my alley. Well, according to Variety.com, instead of rebooting or remaking the 1984 version, it's going to be a reimagining uh, that, according to Variety, will quote pontificate about today's nerd culture and what even constitutes a geek in the 21st century. End quote. And so, yeah, of course, what it meant to be a nerd in the 80s isn't what it is to be today. I mean, right? I mean, nerds are not. Uh, Nerds are running the world now. Well, technically, they ran the world back then, but the mm. old adage was, just, everything will be better once you get out of high school. Mm. That's what they used to tell all the kids. I see. Well, in Revenge of the Nerds, is set in college. So they right. lied. <laughs> they were, yeah, they, they, they lied, lied to them. But now you got your Bill Gateses and your Steve Jobs and your Elon Musks. People aspire to be, you know, these, these, these nerds who break out and yeah. invent something or have some multi-billion dollar corporation. So yeah, how would it be portrayed mm-hmm. in school, I wonder? All cyborgs. Or or maybe in this movie, the nerds are the bullies. Yeah, I I thought about that too. Mm. That would be kind of funny if the football team was the one getting picked on yeah. in this one. Yeah. But, I guess they wouldn't have the physical advantage maybe over the jocks still, but um they can invent stuff. Yeah. Mess with their tech and things. Yeah. They could dox them. That's the thing. They could uh catfish them. Catfish them. <laughs> They could drain their bank accounts. Uh, 
What else? I don't know. We'd have to interview some some current hmm. uh, nerds to find out what they're up to. On an upcoming episode of The Idiots, Nerds Exposed. <laughs> Are you still up to panty raids? <laughs> uh, how do you feel about hair pie? Uh, all right. Hey, in other 80s news, according to Deadline.com, Chris Pine is in talks to star in Dungeons and Dragons. I, I'm all in on this one, too. I love Chris Pine. Yeah. But we've had, you know, we've had a mixed bag as far as Dungeons and Dragons films go in the past. This time around, they're, you know, they're, they're hoping, or maybe not this time around, maybe always they hope that these films will be successful, but they're hoping that this will actually create a new franchise in uh, Dungeons and Dragons films. It's really not that difficult. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, how difficult it is to just tell somebody to go, yeah. have you seen Willow? Yeah. <laughs> okay, go make that, except change it a little bit. Yeah. Take any module. There's thousands of them, thousands of yeah. campaigns. Many of them are good. Yeah, I mean, literally just just sit them down, have them watch Willow, yep. uh, The Lord of the Rings. And if they can't figure it out after that, then they shouldn't be making D&D movies yep. at that point. There's something wrong with them. Yep. Well, according to Deadline, uh, it doesn't seem like a done deal yet, but uh, Pine is in negotiations to star in the film which will be a live action film based on Hasbro's massively popular role-playing game from Wizards of the Coast. Of course, you and I know it well. Uh, and in fact, most folks throughout the world know it because in the last few years, it's been a real resurgence uh, of uh, the game. It is going to be written and directed by Jonathan Goldstein and John Francis Daly, who did uh, worked together on Game Night, which that was actually a pretty funny film, and also wrote Spider-Man Homecoming. I dig the Spider-Man movies. Those were good. Yeah. I don't know why they can't just call George Lucas and Ron Howard. Mm. I mean, that would be, you know, they did Willow. Yeah. You just, just go get those guys. Or just Ron Howard. George Lucas could be retired. You could just let him be retired. He can, he can come up with the story mm. and then the screenwriters can do their thing. Or, or maybe John Favreau instead. John Favreau and, or yeah. and Ron Howard. Well, well even, even he trusts George Lucas. Mm. Well, the deadline, mm -hmm. <laughs> deadline writes that just like the game itself, mounting a screen version of Dungeons and Dragons has been a battle including several years in the courts over a rights dispute. Uh, Warner Brothers and New Line tried several incarnations, including one with uh, Chris McKay. Actually, Shia LaBeouf might have the best idea for a Dungeons & Dragons movie that I've seen so far. Shia LaBeouf? Yeah. W what did he say about... He wants to have him and his friends sitting around the table playing the game, yeah. and during parts of it, it flashes to them yeah. actually dressed up as the characters and playing out the scenes. I, that would be cool. I like that idea. Yeah. That's his idea. And everyone's just ignoring him because he's an idiot. Yeah. I, I think incorporating the actual game mechanics in it in a way that's interesting mm -hmm. would be cool. Yeah. So maybe somebody could like talk to him and, you know, work it out. You know, it's talking to him. I think he's even, he's gone further off the deep end. Recently, I, I haven't been following the news stories, but I... So he's went like mazes and monsters. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Right. All right. That was 80s news. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> so today on the show, we're going to be talking about one-hit wonders, trying to see, see, see if the audience and one another can stump each other on some one-hit wonders from the 1980s. And a little bit later on the show, we're going to be joined by someone who had a one-hit wonder. And you say, you know, one-hit wonder almost sounds derogatory, right? I mean... But getting one hit is like amazing. You and I have had zero. Yeah, they they have 100% more than we do. <laughs> yes. I mean, look, you know, and we'll talk with our guests later today about this as well. But just getting one hit, certainly in 1980s, that's a, that's a huge feat. And this was a song that was a hit around the world. 21 weeks on the Billboard Hot 100, P. 
peaking at number four in 1983. And of course, we're talking about Taco with his hit song, uh, Putting on the Ritz. I love that song. That's a great song. Before that, though, I did want to uh, bring up some uh, messages we got from some of our listeners. Thank you for your cooperation. In a new segment called... Thank you for your cooperation. Thank you. That would be the name of the thing, yeah, right? right? Yeah, See, look, I'm pressing buttons before I even... <laughs> Uh, okay. Hey, we got a message from Bill with an L. Bill, I'm sorry. I'm probably saying your name wrong, uh, but you know who you are. And Bill, this is writes regarding our Christmas episode. And Josh, we haven't been back on since uh, Christmas, but this is regarding our Christmas song episode. And so we did a special episode after that. So uh, we didn't bring this uh, message up, but uh, Bill writes the Max Headroom song, Merry Christmas, Santa Claus. If you remember, we talked about that as one of the odd uh, 1980s Christmas songs. Um, as Bill remembers it, it was written by Bob Geldof of Do They Know It's Christmas and the Boomtown Rats. On the Max Headroom show on Showtime, Bob appeared as a guest and played a little bit of it on acoustic guitar, and the episode ended with the, the version that we played on the show. Uh, keep up the great work. Uh, if, if Bill remembers that off the top of his head, wow, because I didn't remember, I don't, I never even remember seeing this episode ever. <laughs> yeah, I just remember the song. I don't remember the yeah. episode. I did do some digging, though, and it turns out, Bill, that Bob Geldof, you're right. He did, he was on the show, he did play acoustic guitar with Max, and they made it as if they were making up the song sort of then, but it turns out the song was written by the same two gentlemen who wrote the show itself, D David Hansen and Paul Owen. But otherwise, you're right on your hmm. accounts. They did ultimately play a more polished version of it uh, at the end during that weird music video. We also got a message uh, at the end, towards the end of the year from our listener. Okay, here's another one. Erico or Erico, but you know who you are. And he writes, and he wrote, he included us with a few other podcasts and wrote, want to wish a Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays to my favorite podcasts this year. You guys kept me sane and gave me some fun laughs in 2020. So, but that one, that's a good one. Yeah. Hey. Because that's the only reason I show up is to drink beer and make people laugh. Yeah. So look, it's working for at least one guy. So it's, it's just like Bill and Ted when they, when he's in the <laughs> line. Right. From Face the yeah, Music. We got we to gotta write down what those names are, because that's so funny. Yeah, we should. We should actually, I've seen the movie four times now. I yeah. should remember what their names yeah. are at this point. Oh, it's so good. Well, hey, uh, Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays to you, Erico, Erico, uh, and everybody else uh, in, in uh, their listening audience, of course. And that was... Thank you for your cooperation. Oh, see, I got it right that time. Yeah. Okay. All right. This is cool. So you and I picked out two songs to stump one another with, and then we had a number of submissions, and I believe Lonnie picked out four, four songs from all those that we don't know what the songs are. We have the clips, and so we're going to play mm -hmm. the clips. What What did we say? Six seconds was the last time, I think? Yeah, last, I think we did six seconds. So we're going to play six seconds from the beginning of the song and try to identify it. We'll team up when we're listening to one mm -hmm. submitted to us, and then after we take our guesses, I have... Uh, uh, some uh, notes here that will then tell us if we're right or wrong and some facts about the song. We'll learn if it's even a one-hit wonder. Um, should we hmm. do one for each other first or how should we mix this up? I, I don't know. You're <laughs> the, I'm the co-host. You're supposed to have the but plan. But co-host doesn't co-host mean we're co- I'm a co-host. You're no, no, a co-host? No, 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 no. You're not, you're not a co-host. You're the host. Oh, that doesn't... See, that's that, that gives me the ability to dump mm. all the important things on you. See, I thought co meant co and Which co. Is why, which is why when you listen to mine, there is no plan. Oh, <laughs> Because I think I actually list myself as the co-host of... Of, <laughs> of your own podcast? <laughs> of my own podcast. 
That is hilarious. All right. So, hey, why don't we give each other one? It's kind of like Christmas, you know, or, or maybe you yeah. give me one or I'll give you Ooh, one and then we'll do it's one. It's like listener. Secret Santa. Let, you know, let's go back and forth. One from us, one from them, one from us, one from them. All right. All right. Hey, I'll play you one. And All so right, let's do it. What I did was is I just went off of remembering songs from when I was younger during the 1980s and thinking, I bet you Ray never heard this song. And then I checked to make sure it was a hit for the most part that it was in the top 40. Although I think there's right. maybe some others. I, and then I looked at only after I selected the song to see, was it really a one hit wonder? Because part of what we learned last time was, is a lot of people we think were one hit wonders had more than one hit. I said that already. Okay. Sorry. So here is your six seconds of a song. Is that, uh, I know what you're going to guess. Well, you know what I'm going to say. It's, mm. uh, how do I know? Yes. I knew you would guess that. That's yeah, wrong. That's what it sounds like. I know it sounds exactly like it. No, this song is We Don't Have to Take Our Clothes Off by Jermaine Stewart. Huh. Do you even remember well, that song? Vaguely. Hmm. But every time it came on, I probably started singing the other one. So <laughs> You probably changed the channel. You're like, I don't hate Whitney Houston. <laughs> I don't listen to that. Whitney's not that bad. So this song was released in 1986, and it, it was performed by R&B vocalist Jermaine Stewart, as I mentioned. It was the first, it turns out, of three singles that he released that year. But of those three singles, it was by far his largest commercial success. It peaked at number five on the Billboard Hot 100. Outside of the United States, it also uh, charted on the Canadian, Irish, and United uh, Kingdom charts as well. It was written by Narada Michael Walden and Preston Glass. Uh, Walden is a well-known American producer who's done a number of different things. So yeah, the lyrics of the song are, we don't have to take our clothes off to have a good time. Yeah. And uh, we can dance and party all night and drink some cherry wine. So nudity, uh, sex, I guess. No, alcoholism, that's fine, <laughs> is the message to the children. I'll allow it. <laughs> this song uh, came out around during the AIDS pandemic. So it, it makes sense that they're discouraging the one type of activity and maybe encouraging that you could still drink and hang out. I don't know. I think it's kind of a ploy myself. He's like, I'm going to get her liquored up and revenge of the nerds. Are <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Rejected. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> but I don't know. Yes. Well, when I guess that would be, what would you call it? Speculation so that yes. I don't get sued for defamation of character. Yes. Well, in an interview in 1988, Stuart was asked about this. And he, he said a number of different things, and I'll just uh, read you some parts of this quote. He said, we didn't only want to talk just about clothes. We wanted to extend that. Uh, we wanted to use the, the song as a theme to be able to say, you don't have to do all the th negative things that society forces on you. You don't have to drink and drive. You don't have to take drugs early. Hmm, early. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a stand-up dude. <laughs> I wonder if he added that later too. He's like, look, we don't have to take drugs early. Uh, and also... Uh, the girls don't have to get pregnant early. <laughs> he says early <laughs> he on says that, that too. Again. <laughs> <laughs> I think he was saying this song yeah. is making this up as he goes along. All right. Okay. So anyway, there you go. All right. So it turns out though, that uh, Jermaine Stewart had a, a number of other uh, hit songs as well. This was the most shocking part to me because this is the only song of his that I knew. Um, so that came out in 1986 uh, he also had a song in 1984, The Word Is Out, which charted on the Hot 100, 41 at least. He had Jody in 86 at 42. So this one was his biggest hit, but um, he did have some other songs that charted on the top 100. Mm -hmm. Oh, mm -hmm. no, in 1987, he had Say It Again. 
So there you go. All right. Okay. Hey, let's listen to a listener he, one and see if right now. He's a, he's a prolific artist. Yes. Yes. I thought there was a joke in there and I wasn't getting it. No, that's, he, he managed to say dumb shit and still stay on the charts. Early. <laughs> I just, just got to keep add that to whatever we say about yeah. Jermaine Stewart. Okay. Here is one sent in by, let's see, John Henderson. All right. Here's one from John Henderson. Henderson. Here we go. See if we can get this in six seconds. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> I know this piece and I could picture one particular <laughs> use of it. Do you remember when they did um, synchronized swimming on Saturday Night Live? <laughs> it was uh, Martin Short and Harry Shearer. <laughs> We're training to do it. Oh my gosh. If you now, if you don't remember this bit, you got to look it up, but I'm pretty sure they use that piece of music during it. And they probably, I mean, that sounds like a piece of music that was, it's from some kind of sports thing, right? Yeah. Play it, play it again. It's like the opening of uh Sunday isn't night like, football or something. Yeah, right? Isn't it like with the wide, wide world of sports? It sounds like it, but it, that wouldn't have been a hit on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> right, Henderson? If I was going to get, I'd say it's something like an Irene Cara type of mm, yes. song. Yeah. I mean, it's got to be that era. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So some kind of dance or sporty. Yeah. It could be uh, from a film, from a sporty mm -hmm. film or something. All right. Let's see what it is. I don't know. Do you have any other thoughts about it? Nah, I, I, I'm drawn to blank. All right. Oh, this song is Far From Over by Frank Stallone. No shit. Let's see. It was released July 12th, 1983. It's a song by Frank Stallone that appeared in 1983's film Staying Alive and was featured on the soundtrack. Mm. Of course. Uh, it was written by Frank Stallone and Vince DiCola, nominated for a Golden Globe Award for Best Original Song and was remixed by Jellybean Benitez, who produced a number of hits in the 1980s, including ones for Madonna, Whitney Houston, Michael Jackson. It was a top 10 U.S. single in September 1983, peaking at number 10 on the Billboard Hot 100. All right. Do you think Frank Stallone had any other hits? Hell no. <laughs> uh, no, he did not. You're right. Um, he did have a song, Case of You, in 1980 that reached number 67, but I, I think that might be too far out there to be considered a hit. Oh, and he had another one in 1984, Darlin, that was 81. Yeah, I wouldn't say those are hits. Well, both of the songs I gave you were top 100. You just okay. have to guess where they're at in the top 100. Oh, I have to guess that too? You added yeah. an extra thing? I did. All right. Well, hey, let's get to one of yours. Let me just finish this out from still some few other notes here that might be of interest. Oh, okay. So yeah, the instrumental version of the song was used as the theme for Starcade from 1983 to 1987. Starcade is uh, the NWA and WCW's uh, WrestleMania. Oh, here you go. 1984, the song was made memorable in the famous Saturday Night Live synchronized swimming segment with ha Martin Short and Harry Shearer. All right, John, you stumped us. Wow, we had a nice, good record nice. last time. I don't think we were stumped we did. even once. We did. I don't think, yeah, I think we did much better off the rip. Mm. So this is this is a tragedy right. waiting mm. to happen today. All right. Well, let's see. Well, I say we, we can redeem ourselves, but we can't because we're going to play one from you for me. Bangkok, oh, come on. Yeah, but do you know the chart? Oh boy. Where it charted. I feel like on the billboard it. billboard one hundred. All right. Now that's one of my favorite songs for the nineteen eighties. That song by uh, uh nineteen eighty four, Murray yeah. Head, One Night in Bangkok. Yep. Obviously you know what it was. From the musical chess and became a hit song on the radio mm -hmm. because Murray mm -hmm. Head did a cover of it. Huh. I'm gonna say it was definitely in the top forty. 
I'm going to say it was even in the top 10. I'll guess eight. Eight was the peak. Well, according to what I looked up, 77. 77? Yeah. No, that's yep. wrong. Oh, I, I agree. I heard that song all the time. I thought it was like a number one hit. And in fact, I, I, my one of my recollections is, you know, one of my fondest memories would be going down to see family, you know, on the weekend, we would go down the shore to see one family or, you know, somewhere further out west of his other family. And we would just have top 40 radio. Oh, wait a minute. Hold on now. Uh-oh. This just in. I actually looked it up mm-hmm. instead of just guessing. Wait, you didn't. You did. It, it hit number three <laughs> on yeah, the U.S. Right, Billboard okay, 100. Okay. Well, th- that makes more sense. Because, yeah, seriously, it was definitely on one of those top 40 shows, you know, Casey Kasem or something. Mm-hmm. And I do love that song. Okay, here is another listener-submitted song, this time from Lisa Soto. All right, I mean, that's not going to give us anything in six seconds. Uh, I I definitely don't recognize it. We could probably play more of it, and I still wouldn't get it. I want to say it's either Joan Jett or the Go-Go's. That would be Uh, my two guesses. uh, Because it's definitely in that kind of vein of what they would do. I think we can concede, Lisa, that you stumped us with six seconds. So why don't we just play more of it, see if we can get it even in whatever, (laughs) at all. All right, let's see if we can figure out what this is. (laughs) I have no idea. That's a stumper for me too. All right, Lisa, you got us. Man, what happened? 2021 is off to a terrible start for us in this regard. Getting our asses kicked. Forgot all our 80s knowledge in the new year. All right, so this is Cocktail. Yeah, we did hear him sing that just now. Cocktail Queen by Taxi. Taxi were an English rock band best known for the song I'm Leaving. All right, so that wasn't even their most well-known hit. Uh, The band formed in the late 1970s and first came to prominence in the early 80s with a few minor AOR hit singles and some MTV airplay. So yeah, and I'm not familiar with them, but apparently they were big enough to open for The Police, Foreigner, Night Ranger, Loverboy, Blue Oyster Cult, Joan Jett, and also released five uh, music videos. We already know they have another hit because they were better known for I'm Leaving, which was number 39 on the Billboard mainstream rock track charts. Oh, you know what? (laughs) Aha. All right, these guys don't look like they charted on the Billboard uh, US 100. Oh, so that's probably why I didn't get that. That's one. right. We only know songs <laughs> on the, on the US. Wait, except for Frank Stallone. <laughs> Asterisk Frank Stallone. I'm starting to think maybe that the, the fans have decided to just fuck with us on this one. <laughs> well, the last time we were chastising them a bit for sending in, you know, like top 10 Stuff. songs. Yeah. And they weren't one hit wonders. This is much more fun, though. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I like. We can learn new songs too. So now I am going to play you another one. Try to stump you. All right. Now again, selected it first, then figured out if it's a one-hit wonder or not. Hmm. I don't have Nothing. a clue what that is. <sighs> I feel like you were a lot kinder to me with your thing, even though yours is impossible. This is one of those songs that you know. So many songs where I grew up on the East Coast that I think. Only after moving here that I realized, hey, I think like a whole, like... <laughs> Something happens different here? Yeah, like certain things never get here. Yeah, well, if you turn the radio on in Cleveland, it's still playing 70s and 80s music. Yeah. what it, What is this? This song is Sidewalk Talk. 
And I'm going to say it's by Jelly Bean Benitez, who we just talked about a moment ago, had having produced uh, Frank Stallone's song. But I'm going to say <laughs> asterisk because I think this is an interesting story. So I love this song. The song was released in October uh, of 1984, but the song was actually written by Madonna. Hmm. In 1983, Madonna met Jelly Bean, and they were, who was a DJ at the Fun House at the time in Manhattan. They started dating each other, and he started helping her with her self-titled debut album, which got released in 1983. Then he started working on his own debut record, which was called What Up Ski, and he asked Madonna to do some writing for him. Uh, she gives him this song, which she had originally played with maybe having on her own album. When the song was released, however, the lead vocals are sung by Catherine Buchanan and not Madonna. And then in the background, though, is Madonna. So Madonna sings the background in the chorus, and the verses are sung by Catherine Buchanan. It's kind of like a rap song thing. So it ultimately charts at number 18 in the Hot 100. That's up there. I have no idea why I've never heard this song. So in uh, 2011, when they re-released the uh, record on a CD, did, did they still release CDs on in 2011? Anyway, in the booklet that came with the CD, uh, David Ibarra, who was the editor, I believe, of Data Magazine. Well, I'm not familiar with the magazine, but anyway, he wrote commenting how it was mysterious that some unknown singer would sing it and get credit for the lead vocals when you could have Madonna, a name who just had a hit album out and, and use that to promote it. So one of the possible explanations that's been floated about about why this may have happened is that uh, maybe Madonna recorded it for her own record, sang all the vocals, and when she gave it to Jellybean, he took her out and replaced her with somebody else because it's his own Jellybean album and he didn't want to share the spotlight. It turns out Jellybean had a, a, some other hit singles. I think the highest one was one called Who Found Who, which was number 16. The other ones were 82, 90, so I don't know that we'd count those. Okay, let's hear another one from a uh, listener. This one was sent in by Dan Calisabetti. Come on, Dan. All right, this is more like it. This is more like it. All right, we know what that song is, right? <laughs> yeah, say what it is. That is In a Big Country by Big Country. Uh, yeah, I'd know that That's one if we it. heard it. Of course, yes. Of course we have that right. In a Big Country is a song by Scottish rock band Big Country. I always thought it was funny that they, you know, when, when bands would have a song that's essentially the name of their band. I call that the, you get one shot at the trifecta, Will. Yeah. Bad Company by Bad Company off the album Bad Company. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like that that thing, the trifecta can only happen once. I and see. I'm surprised more bands don't do it. That's the only one. Yeah. So had they named their song, their album Big Country, they would have done it. They had the trifecta. Yeah, I don't remember what this album is called. Maybe it says on here. Let's see. Um, it could be Big Country. It was released in May. <laughs> maybe it was. It was released in May 1983 as the third. Oh, here it is. As the third single from their debut studio album, The Crossing. Ah. It reached number 17 in the UK and in the, oh, in June of 1983. And then it was released in the US in the fall of 1983, where it peaked at number 17 on the Billboard Hot 100 ah. in December of go. the year. Okay. Of course, you remember there was a music video that was played on MTV all of the time. It was like the four band members are some kind of treasure hunt. Yeah, basically an adult version of the Goonies. Yes, and of course, one of the great things about this band, you know, they're a Scottish a band, and they do incorporate that Scottish folk sound into their music, but they use guitars and other instruments to evoke the sounds of bagpipes and fiddles and other traditional folk instruments. There you go, Professor Brat. that was for you. <laughs> Big Country, was it their only hit song? I'm going to say no, because I think they had another one. Oh, so here's another song. Fields of Fire was number 52 on the Billboard Hot 100. So that... 
Maybe that's what you're thinking that, of. I think that qualifies as a hit. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I don't remember how top, we did it last top time. Top 100. Okay, so we're on to you. So let's see. This is Ray's one hit wonder. He's trying to try to stump me. See if you listening at home could guess it as well. I have no idea what this is. You do because I just told you what it was. You did? What do you mean? No, they did. I heard I heard cannibal, I think. I eat cannibals. I eat cannibals. Yeah. So that's the song you're saying. You're listening to Jelly Bean out on the on, you know, <laughs> in Jersey. Yeah. And this was this was on MTV here a lot. Hmm. I, okay. So even having the song name, I can't think of who it is. Um Well, here's all right. This is their only song yeah. in the top one hundred. The name of the band, which I don't know how to pronounce this. It's Toto Colio. Oh no. C O E L O. Wait, is that the whole thing? Toto Colio C O E L O. Yeah, basically. <laughs> Uh, 1985. It's got some hot chicks dancing around in like caveman outfits mm, and stuff. I can kind of picture that. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I did not recognize that at all. No. Where do you think that? No, I just oh, I boy. I did actually look this back up, yeah. so I don't have to. Uh, out of the top 100, I'm going to say 99, yeah. 66. Oh. Oh, I had my paper upside down. <laughs> no, I no, I didn't know that at all. Sheesh. All right, this one was sent in by Mike Todd. Oh, I like the sound of that. You know what it sounds like to me? I don't know what song it is, but it sounds like Oingo Boingo. Right? Isn't it kind of Oingo Boingo-y? It could be Oingo Boingo-y. Yeah, it's definitely got kind of that flavor. Mm. I thought we knew all the big Oingo Boingo hits. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, it might not be. Yeah, let's, let's, let's listen to a little more. All right, so Mike, you stumped us. Let's see if we can get it with some more here. I'm thinking maybe Thomas Dolby. Mm. Kind of digging it, though. It's very 80s. Oh, yeah, it is. This is going to be the most <laughs> 80s song. I was going to say. It does, like but it, it sounds like 87 different artists, so I yeah. can't figure out who it is. That is The Honey Thief by Hipsway. Wow. <laughs> Mike, I don't know that I've ever heard any of those words before. Huh. No, but the, the dude had a great voice. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So let's see. Uh, Honey Thief was a 1986 song performed by the Scottish band Hipsway. Uh, it was included on their 1986 self-titled debut album and released as a single, which reached number 17 on the UK single store and number 19 on the Billboard Hot 100. Huh. I will just tell you that it was the band's only top 100 hit in the U.S. Hmm. They were quickly signed up by Mercury Records and by 1985 had released their first eponymously titled album. That's a word I f***ing hate. <laughs> eponymous. eponymous. <laughs> I hate that word. Why they just couldn't say self, self-titled. <laughs> There's another f***ing word. There's another word that they use yeah. for the first self-titled album. Uh, huh. It's another one I hate too because it's Titular? hard to say. No. Um, Titular is another word I hate because mm. it's just dumb. It don't make no sense. Hmm. Well, it's like title. <laughs> yeah. It's the same. There's thing. a lot of words I hate like that because I look at them and I mess them all mm. up. Now we need a new segment of that. Ray hates words. <laughs> oh, you you know when I hate them yep. because I'll just right out get mad the second you say them. <laughs> you get, yeah. The show gets derailed. Yeah. Uh, I want to do that segment. Ray hates words. And I just say a word and just, <laughs> and you have, you just like, Urgh. it's usually a big word. So yeah. So the, all right. So Mike stumped us. Um, Henderson stumped us. Lisa Soto stumped yeah. us. Dan did not stump us. 
Maybe Dan was mm-hmm. doing us a favor. Yeah, I think he was like, oh my God, they've, they've done it. They're going to get themselves into a trouble he spot. He knew that so. <laughs> the listeners are coming with some toughies this time. Yeah. Because last time it was a little easier. All right, so all right, so there you go. That was uh, the One Hit Wonders songs challenge. Uh, we didn't do so great. No, we so, stunk up the joint. Uh, thanks to everybody who sent a suggestion in. We're sorry we couldn't get to everyone's suggestion, but uh, please follow us on Facebook where we uh, occasionally solicit feedback from the listeners in connection with an upcoming episode. Um, and you could also go to our website where you can email us or fill out a little small uh, form there on the on the homepage to send us comments, suggestions, etc. Okay, well, hey, here's a chance to redeem us. Let's talk to somebody actually who has some talent and knows things about uh, one-hit wonders from the 1980s. In a moment, we'll be right back with Taco. guest today redefined an Irving Berlin classic for an entire generation by pairing deadpan vocals of a vintage crooner with a breakthrough electronic sound. Our guest created an unlikely hit with Puttin' on the Ritz. The single was a global smash reaching number one on Cashbox and sat on the Billboard Hot 100 for 21 weeks where it peaked at number four. Our guest released five albums throughout the 1980s, including 1984's Let's Face the Music, which ranked on the West German and Canadian charts. Returning to his roots in theater in the years since his big hit, our guest has also acted on stage, film, and screen abroad. And although he may be too humble to admit it, he's also an excellent dancer. Today, when he's not performing, you can find him on Facebook and YouTube, where he shares classic videos and never-before-seen demos of past and new performances. Please welcome to the show, Taco. Well, Hey, Taco, how are you, man? <laughs> Great to be on your show, Will. Hi. You know, I'm sure you've heard this. I'm sure everything I'm going to say you've heard a million times because, you know, you've been... Uh, you were a hit so long ago and have been uh, performing ever since. But there are a few icons from the 1980s that can be identified by just one name. I mean, a handful. And you're, you're one of them by, by far. But, but first of all, you know, it, it was a tough one, you know, to be born with a name like Taco. Yeah. Uh, that's kind of like being born with a, a name like Sue. Uh, a boy named Sue, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I note that in some interviews you refer to yourself as a planetarian. You've lived different places uh, growing up. Like most Americans, I was born and I stayed here. You know, I lived in two different states so far. But so my influences are American and I grew up mostly in the 1980s. Having traveled the world and lived in different countries, uh, what were your pop cultural influences growing up? Well, uh, my parents uh, were both really into music and, and my grandfather uh, had his own orchestra back in Indonesia. Wow. In the middle 40s and, and right. 30s. So, uh, yeah, it, it was always a very musical household. My other grandfather played uh, the violin. And growing up in the colonies, which, yep. uh, which was a thing in, in Indonesia, you, you lived in a, in a very, uh, very close circuit. So the Dutch uh, over there, you know, they, they would be kind of like in their own clubs. 
mm-hmm. and they, they would uh, to entertain them. Uh, they they would put on little shows, and and even my mother was in that. So you know, like kind of pageant things. So music was always there, and and we heard jazz at home. Uh, we heard classical music. Uh, and I got acquainted to the American Songbook much later, uh, mm-hmm. uh, because uh, through all the traveling, we uh, were put on the International Schools of America, my brother and I. Right. And uh, yeah, the first thing you do is go to school choir. Then uh, the first musicals came on, like a, You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. Sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. Uh, I, you know, I, I not only consider myself a planetarian, but also like a secondhand American because, you know, I grew up with your whole culture, but abroad and not in the States. Yeah. That seems like a great way to experience so many cultures, uh, you know, having that opportunity to travel and live for different places. Um, so, okay. So music was early in your blood. And in a sense, um, I know I read that at one point you thought, uh, cause your music career may not be going the way you thought, um, this is when you first started uh, in Germany and you had a chance for a record contract and turned it down because you didn't want to sing in German for the rest of your life. It seemed like maybe you were going to inherit the family business, you know, talking about uh, taking up sales like your father in, in fashion. But it seems like maybe now that you've said that, you, you already were inheriting a family business that went per, uh, further back in generations with to your grandfather. Well, um, it, it's, it's, it's uh, an on and off uh, thing. It, yeah. It's very funny. I uh, started uh, in a little, um, what do you, how should I put that? Uh, a little operetta school when I was mm-hmm. around six or seven. Right. Uh, so, so young, young boys and girls, you know, got acquainted to uh, learning to play the piano. You know, you do little shows oh. and, uh, I, I really flunked at, at, at playing piano, <laughs> but, but I like singing in the choir. And um, yeah, uh, so, so from, from then on, you know, music was all, always, yeah, so normal to my life. Yeah. So, so by the time I graduated, uh, the funny thing was uh, the most obvious thing to me was not, you know, uh, a parent. And it, it took my father to tell me uh, a couple of years later to say, why don't you go to acting school? Mm. Uh, because that's where you were. Ha- you were always happy on stage. And I go, okay. <laughs> 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 About that time we were in Germany. And first of all, you know, I had to learn German and, uh, and going to, to acting school in German, you know, was a real help a boost, you know, to get me in that whole scene. Right. I can't imagine, well, first of all, it's really fascinating that your father would recommend that to you, you know, when so often parents are discouraging kids from taking up uh, a, a career in the arts because <laughs> well, it's so hard. Well, he saw me flunk at uh, oh. architecture. <laughs> after. <Yeah. laughs> That's a college, you know, I studied architecture after I graduated. Yeah. That was in Belgium at that time. And I was so unhappy. Yeah. <laughs> it was so mathematic, you know. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> he said, we got to find something with this boy. <laughs> so you were more right, right-brained and not left-brained. <laughs> I can't imagine learning acting and German at the same time. I mean, learning enough another language, and you were older by then. Uh, you know, they say it comes easier when you're younger. But to learn another language and uh, another skill at the same time seems 
Very challenging. Uh, learning by doing. Yep. Uh, <laughs> before I knew it, uh, I was working as an extra. And um, uh, we have a, a system here in Germany that's repertoire theater. So you're, you're mm. part of a big system. And when they hire you, they, they put you in all plays. And uh, so, so I really learned by, you know, watching the big German stars um, acting. Right. And uh, so, so it, you know, it, it was not only learning German, but seeing, you know, actors doing something. And I was on stage every day or I was at rehearsals and uh, yeah. It was really learning by doing. Yeah, and I know before we started recording, you were talking about how in Germany, you know, things are more disciplined. And it sounds like that is a, you know, they treat it like a, a trade in the way they would anything else by getting you practical experience. Yeah. It, you know, I, I came through the back door. It, it was, it, actually, it's a very funny story because I, I asked my other students, uh, how, do you, how do you guys make money, you know, to, to, to afford acting school? And they said, well, we work as extras at, at the theater. And I said, well, okay, can I do that too? And at that time, they were looking for, um, uh, a, uh, what do you call that, a second cast? Like understudies? For, or yeah, understudies. Ah, that's the word. Thanks, Will. Okay. So they were looking for understudies for a sweet charity. And uh, I, ca I came there in the canteen, and there was the director and all these big German stars that I didn't know at that time. I was completely mm. naive. And I go in there and I said, hi, everybody. My name is Taco and I, I heard you're looking for an understudy. Here I am. A dancer. Okay, as a dancer. And they all looked at me like, wow, this guy's just got guts. Yeah. Had, had you known those German actors, maybe you would have been more intimidated, you think? Of course. Yep. <laughs> I'm still intimidated. Oh. <laughs> if, if I meet somebody who's got a huge career, oh, my God, you should see me, you know. I, I, <laughs> but I, 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 I was happy-go-lucky. I didn't care. I went in there. And they said, well, can you dance? I said, oh, sure. Mm. <laughs> and believe me, up till today, I never considered myself a dancer. Oh, I I consider myself a mover. Okay. That's something different, you know. <laughs> well, hmm, that's really surprising, of course, because folks are, I'm sure, are very familiar with your video for uh, putting on the Ritz, and you clearly are tap dancing in the in this video. Well, you pick that up, you know. You you have tap dancing classes yep. uh, at acting school and and uh, or to do it for plays. So um, yeah, it, it, it's it's you know it's more about selling it. Hmm. You, you sell it really well. <laughs> well, Will, that's all about attitude, you know. Well, well, yeah, if you could show up at a German theater and say, here's your understudy, yeah, you've got attitude. <laughs> established that. You know, I, when I was a kid, it, it, sure, sure, when I was later, you know, uh, grew up in the 80s, you know, exposed to those films, etc. But my dad and I bonded a lot over, over movies when I was even younger. And in addition to watching uh, Westerns and James Bond films, he loved musicals. Um, so, you know, we would watch Broadway musicals that were adapted to film, but we'd also watch Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly. Be because of those films, I wanted to learn to tap dance, you know, for my whole life. And it was only till last year that I actually took up lessons, you know, being almost 50 years old and now wanting to do it. It's hard. I'm telling folks it's hard. Taco is, you know, being humble here. Oh, it is. I couldn't, I couven't fake it the way oh, you Oh, it's so hard that I gave up really fast. <laughs> well, yeah. I learned that routine and that's it, man. Is that right? Oh. <laughs> well, 
Oh, it's great. You know, I was surprised to see, to read that um, you hadn't, like you said, you weren't exposed to the American Songbook until later, and that you you didn't even hadn't even seen the performance of uh, the the original performance of Putting on the Rich, which was by uh, Clark Gable. And no, actually, that wasn't the original one. The original one was uh, before that in uh, Putting on the Rich. Uh, right, but you. Had, you hadn't seen the Clark Gable one until it was in uh, That's Entertainment, which was uh, like a 70s film that MGM put out, which a compilation of different uh, clips. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I would have thought that would have been something you would have had grown up seeing. Uh, no, not, not so much uh, growing up seeing, seeing the movies. It, it, it was more, you know, listen to these songs at home. Yeah. You know, listen to all the, the, all the great swing masters and, and Louis Armstrong, Ella Fitzgerald, all that. But movies was much later, much later. Right. And because my dad also went uh, with us boys, you know, to see cowboy movies. And, uh, right. So there's been three film versions, at least. Uh, certainly the most iconic is probably Fred Astaire's version in uh, Blue Skies. But Clark Gables is, is your favorite. But it seems like your delivery and your uh, iconic version of Putting on the Ritz is more like Harry Richmond in that sort of, you know, 1930s sort of more flat deadpan sort of uh, radio style. Well, I, I like the, the the crooner era, mm. and um, what what inspired me also we, we had done uh, Chicago in Germany in Hamburg, Germany at at this theater, and uh, after my debacle, I don't know if is that an English word for yes. you? Yes, <laughs> yes. With uh, German singing, I had to come up with a complete new image. Mm. And I had uh, ripped up the, this contract and because I was very unhappy, uh, you know, because it, it would have meant singing German all of my life. Mm. And uh, so it was, you know, going back in quarantine and thinking up a, a whole new uh, image. So I, I thought of what I did in, uh, in Chicago, you know, with, with the grease paint and, and, and the hair uh, slimmed back uh, and that way nobody recognized me anymore and uh, mm. and with the new Neue Deutsche Welle you know the the, the, the nouvelle folk mu music coming right. up I thought it would be really cool you know to take the the, the, the classic American songbook and uh, combine that with the electronic music and what was was there something particular about putting the American songbook for folks to know I mean it's dozens of classic songs uh, was there something about putting on the Ritz that uh, you connected with or that you thought would be most uh, uh, or best to be adapted to this, you know, new technology? The package was perfect because, you know, it, 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 I, I always think visual and, I, yeah. and I, I like the visual thought of Ritz. Right. See, see, I, when I uh, released Ritz in, uh, in Germany, the companies weren't really interested in it. I, I, I was signed uh to RCA, but it was one of these deals, you know, uh, okay, you buy my artist and, and we'll, we'll take the other artists mm. too. I was one of, one of those. Oh, you were one of the other artists then you're saying? Yeah. Um. They, you know, I wasn't, uh, their top, uh, favorite or anything or anything. So it was just put out. And, uh, so the first lease and, uh, to create, create a little excitement, I made this deal with big apartment, uh, stores where I would, uh, be put into the, the, the window as a puppet. <laughs> Why? <What? laughs> that's, that's awesome. Yeah, then we had this electronic music owner. 
And if, when enough people were attracted, you know, yeah. on the street, I would say, okay, turn the tape on. <laughs> <laughs> Not moving your mouth, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, as a robot, right. I do the and, oh, and after that, I would do my, uh, an autograph hour. And um, wow, but all that didn't help, you know. And 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 then I opened uh, a, a sportswear store with my father because I, I I I was really frustrated, you know. Here I have a whole new image, a new song, and nobody really gave a yes. Mm. <coughs> and uh, <laughs> then about half a year later, I got a phone call from Sweden, RCA Sweden. And they said, please come over. We want you to do promotion over here. And I go, oh, my God. And I had nothing to lose. So I, I go to Sweden. And, and there's this Rolls at, at the airport. Mm. And, and I just had this single. I just had Brit. And on the B side, it was After Eight. Right. Hmm. And, and, that, and I went to the top disco there at night, and oh my God, like the guys were all in tuxedos, the girls in, in evening gowns. And I got, oh my God, this is, a, this is a big thing over here. And I ended up singing uh, the A and D side 10 times. <laughs> <laughs> and when I left Stockholm to go back to Hamburg, the LP after eight was already gold status. Mm, wow. But I didn't have an LP. Right. Oh. I just, I <laughs> That's what you two songs, right? Yeah. So you had a scramble and now write a, like a handful of other songs then, I guess, right? Yeah. Oh. We worked uh, 24 hours, uh, really, you know, oh. around the clock just to get this uh, after eight out. So it's a very funny story. Yeah, that's amazing. I can't imagine that feeling to think that you're going about your life in one direction when the popularity for something you created is just growing in this area that you're unaware of. And then suddenly have this surprise sort of thrust on you. That's got to be feel amazing. It, it was mind boggling, you know, because for, for me, the whole theme Ritz was over, you know, yeah. but after Stockholm, it was like, oh, my God, what have I started? Yeah. And then, you know, whilst uh, composing or, or, you know, writing the lyrics, then it was time to start thinking, oh, my God, you know, the, it has to be congruent. You know, the, the whole LP concept, it has to be uh, like uh, some kind of this weirdo who, <laughs> who came out of a time machine yes, from yes. 30. And, uh, and that was the fun thing, creating that. Right. And before I knew it, I was on the road. You know, we're talking 80s. Where, you know, we didn't have MTV. We didn't, we, uh, you know, let alone uh, this mass media. So I had to be there. Right. I had to fly to all these countries. And uh, yeah, that, and that was the hard work, you know. You know, I feel like there's so many opportunities for... Now I'm going to sound like an old man. So many opportunities for young people to create, create things in the world today as far as technology and reach, you know, global networks. But it seems like absent from that is the hard work that had to be done or should be done as a sort of training ground that, that, that you did in the 1980s. You know, your performances uh, in, this, in the uh, department stores reminds me of, you know, Tiffany with her mall, mall tour, you know, which ultimately led to her finding success. It seems like kids today won't know how, what it really takes to be successful. Do you think it's harder in that sense for maybe people to break out these days, even though there's more opportunity? 
I don't know if there's as much opportunity to stand out by doing something like you did. Uh, it, it's a whole different scene, Will. Everything has changed. I mean, mm. for me, it's, it's hard to cope now with this whole digitalized world. Yeah. I'm old school, and, and you can relate to it because you grew up in that time. Yep. You know, it was going out there, meeting people, you know, and yeah. and, and then shaking hands, saying, let's, do, let's make a deal or something. And now it, it, it's all very, uh, yeah, reclusive. It's all very, you know, everybody does his own room or he makes, or makes a video and goes on to YouTube. That, that's yeah that'd be very unsensual yeah. actually yeah it's it's nearly anonymous you could you know yeah <laughs> of course your song in 1983 was number one on cashbox a global hit and also number four on billboard hot 100 for 21 weeks yeah incredible, incredible. and of course you had some follow-up albums that also charted uh around the around the globe in some other areas um i, I know i noticed something that it intrigues me that again, you describe yourself as a planetarian. Uh, ultimately, when you have this song, uh, you know, you're, it's produced out of Germany. Yeah. It's, I did a little digging to think this was my thesis in the 1980s. Did we have more folks from around the world have hits on the billboard 100 than in other decades? And it seems at least initially true that I, I, I did find one list that uh, it was a list of hot 100 number one hits by European. This is non-British artists uh, in the 1980s. And there were, double the amount of the 1980s than in any other decade that came close. I don't know. There's, there was something special about the 1980s. And at the time we were becoming more global in that sense, but we're not less global now, I wouldn't think. But uh, I think it has to do with the style of music. Hmm. You mustn't forget uh, America was, you know, has, has the rock and roll uh, basis, you know, that yeah. inspired everybody and really developed that to, you know, yeah, incredibly. But the, the whole electronic music was born in Europe. Mm, right. And that's what happened in the 80s. Right, 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 right. And, uh, yeah, I, I try to look at, you know, uh, from, from that angle. Yeah, you, you remind me that a number of the songs that were number one hits were folks were credited to folks that were pioneers in electronic music, like Jan Hammer and Harold Faltmeyer. Yeah, and, and even into the 80s, I mean, look at the big successes of... of, of Michael Jackson, that wasn't so much the electronic music. He mixed it in already, but, mm -hmm. you know, through the Quincy Jones inspiration, you know, he used big bands and he used the, 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 the brass and everything. Right. right. Yeah. And, yeah. But in Europe, we were doing everything completely electronic. A, a production like Ritz was done just with a little Casio and a drum machine. Mm, I love that sound. You know, to your point about how things are different today, um, even how digital music, and I had this conversation with Harold Faltemeyer, even how digital music's created today versus then, today you do it on a computer. Back then you had actual synthesizers that were physical and had physical things in them. And there was something more, I don't know, because it is more tangible, there's something more, I don't know, like you were saying about that idea of meeting people and shaking hands, there's something more real about it. It feels, you know, and authentic, I guess. Yeah. We'd, we'd be on the road and, and you know, with, with, with the technical equipment, you know, the, the, the synthesizers, like you said, and everything, the drum machine. Those were the first years of it. And, and, and believe me, on, on tour, I mean, a, a lot went wrong. I, I remember performing in, in Japan and the big opening number was Ritz, of course, with, with the intro of, you know, Duka Daka, Duka yeah. Daka. And at some point, the drum... The machine got stuck. Oh, no. <laughs> and it 
Yeah. Uh, and I'd see, you know, the technicians going completely crazy, you know, yeah. trying to, you know, <laughs> right. all kinds of buttons and, and <laughs> you know, because that was also connected to the tape machine. Oh, right. Oh, it, <laughs> yeah. It's probably a sequencer that drove the whole thing and kept everything yeah. together. And, oh, boy. And those things would break down, you yeah. know. I remember doing half playback shows, you know, where we still have the music coming from tapes. Right. And those tapes, uh, <laughs> you know, tapes. Yeah, uh, they're physical. They're real. They're real, but they get yeah. stuck too. You oh, know? yeah. And you, and you got tape salad. <laughs> oh, no. Right. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. We went through hell. I swear, mm. I swear to God, you know, now it's just, you know, Plug in a, a joystick or what you call that. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you just need a laptop. It's a whole orchestra. Yeah, it's insane. Yeah. But no, we, you know, we had to do handmade music and it was electronic. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And your, you, your music, and, and thinking about putting on the Ritz and the other songs on After 8 too, because you had Singing in the Rain and you had albums since that, you know, that uh, covered swing songs. It was, it was, it, Obviously, you were. It was a callback to older songs because they were covers, but it was also prescient in a sense because uh, in the 1990s we had this sudden influx of other bands that were doing swing music now, and not you know doing covers, and we had some new original swing songs and swing dancing became popular again. And I, I would I think in part that's due to your success in the 1980s, bringing it back to a new generation. Yeah, I, I I think swing will never die. It's it, because it's it's so much fun. Yes. And every singer at some point, you know, it just can't, you know, it, is, it itches, you know, yeah. uh, you can, you even heavy metal artists, you know, say, I, I want to give it a go, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's really happy music. And, uh, yeah, yeah I, I did uh, in two, 17, uh, 2017, I, I, I gave it, I gave it a go again, uh, because I really love this, uh, elect, new electronic swing. Right. Yes. Uh, electro swing right and where you just take snippets and uh, you know it's it's really developed uh, on and on and you have clubs over here that play strictly electro swing and people get dressed up uh, you know, like in the 20s and 30s and, and they're it's a hoot really yeah i love that sound too and I, I i first discovered it a few years ago i think around the time you did uh, your your re, your new version of putting on the Ritz? It seemed really popular in France. A lot of the music I was finding was coming out of France. Yes, very much so. But you know, you always have that. You know, in, in times of crisis, uh, you you know, it's something very historical. You know, people, you know, have this idea of the, the good old days. Yeah. Good, but it's the good old days, you know. You know, you remind me, and I wonder if this was uh, a conscious thing by you or the video director for putting on the Ritz that there was a contrast that existed in the video between the elite and I guess the lower class um, that maybe was sort of emblematic of the 1980s. You know, it's amazing to me that we had such economic strife in this country, middle class suffering, you know, factories closing. But a lot of the pop culture was light and airy and fun and maybe as a form of escape. And your video sort of puts both things on display, you know, where you're in a tuxedo and other folks are dressed up. But the first images are folks around, you know, a fire out of a barrel and uh, sort of in an alley kind of look. Was that was that a, a statement that was sort of a conscious observation of what was actually happening around the world and in America? Well, I think Put It On The Ritz is a very political song, mm. a period. Uh, and... Uh, 
it's for for every era. I mean, we haven't overcome this unjust uh, society thing up till today. Yeah. And uh, so it, it's it's. I, I would say it's a very cynical view, you know, me coming in a tux, yeah. mm. you know, well to do up and down. It's, it's cynical. Yeah. Whilst people are starving in the streets. Right. And that hasn't changed yeah. up till today. Mm. It seems like a very 80s thing for you to, your, your character to saunter in and say, hey, just put on the Ritz. It's as simple as that, folks. You know, you could lift yourself out of poverty. Just do it. Put on a top hat. No, I think it's a bit deeper than that. Yes, yes, yes. But just putting on a I'll top make... hat doesn't get you out of a terrible situation. Yeah, that, yeah, that's the joke I'm making. I guess that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Actually, you know, it, it's it's very sad, and and uh, I, I can only handle that with uh, cynicism. Right. So, as I mentioned, you know, as far as hit songs go, yours was huge—a global phenomenon. Uh, alone, you know, which was again, 21 weeks on the billboard 100, uh, number four, it's a moniker that you should wear, you know, with pride, I think to have even one hit is amazing. So when folks talk about you as a one hit wonder, does that, uh, do you have any issue with that? No, yeah. it's, uh, it, it's hard enough to, to, to make one hit. And I know uh, how hard it was, you know, to, to, yeah. to, to get that thing going. And, and I, and I, Coming from the theater, that's where I worked, you know, and I did theater work later. Also, I, yeah, I see it as uh, something wonderful that happened along the way. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it's nothing, uh, but it's nothing that I, you know, rave about and go, oh, my God, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm really sad that, you know, I, I didn't make another hit. Yeah. Because if you throw yourself into that routine, you know, oh, God, I, I need another hit record. Mm. Uh, that spoils all the fun and then it's only, you know, pressure, pressure. Mm -hmm. uh, I never wanted to get into that routine. Smart. You know, I got to tell you, actually, one of the things I loved about your song, like saying, uh, based on the films I grew up with, it was probably the first song in the 1980s that was a new song, you know, quote unquote new, that I knew the words to as soon as it came out because I was so familiar with the Fred Astaire version. You know? So I, I could sing along to it right away. Amazing, my friends. They had no idea how I could know that song, you know? <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> but Taco, thank you so much for your time. And uh, thank you for, for what you did in the 1980s because, uh, you know, like you said about swing music, it's your song is fun and brought us and still brings us much joy. Well, thank you for having me on the show, Will. And uh, yeah, it, it's, it's always a pleasure to talk about those times and uh, it's really a joy look we took our one hit wonder challenge we spoke to a gentleman with one of the all-time hits from the 1980s but i don't know if we've actually proven anything this mm. episode well, we have proven Yo. beyond a shadow of a doubt okay that taco tuesday in the 1980s <laughs> was far yes. superior to taco tuesday oh. in any other decade yes all right hey we will talk to you next time on the 80s see ya 